0: All right, well, if you would, make your way to your seats and open your Bibles to Psalm 110. Well, as I said, last week we were at the Together for the Gospel conference from Monday through Wednesday, and on Wednesday I flew out from Indianapolis and went to Portland, Maine to visit with my grandparents. My grandfather is 99, and my grandmother is 95, and it has been almost... Four years, no, three years since I'd seen them, I missed them so much. And so I uh, took that time uh, to visit with them and actually I have a picture of my grandmother and I. There we are. Yeah. So there we are looking at old photo albums. I don't know how many times we've looked at photo albums together sitting in that very spot. I mean, I can remember as just a little boy, they've lived in this, this house all their life really, all my father's life, I should say, And so for 65 years, um, and I can remember as a little boy her just telling me stories, going through these old photos, and it helped me see that I was, I was part of a bigger story, that there was history to my family, and to see people who had gone on before me, and, and she would tell me their story. And I just, I loved hearing these stories. I loved looking at these pictures. And so we did it again. And it's important for us to understand that we are part of a bigger story. And the same is true when it comes to Scripture. When we read Scripture, we're, we're part of a, a bigger story. God has made some amazing promises to us in Scripture. But it starts the opening chapters of our Bibles. In Genesis 3, we hear of a promise that a descendant will come from the line of the woman Eve and destroy the work of the evil one, the snake. While at the same time, this this promised one will suffer a fatal wound. We see this promise in Genesis 3.15. That promised line of the woman is then traced eventually to Abraham in Genesis 12, who's then himself given a promise. Yahweh tells him, through you, through your offspring, Abraham, all the families, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The story of Genesis goes on to trace the promise line from Abraham to his grandson, Judah. In Genesis 49, Judah receives a promise from his father, Jacob, about a specific royal descendant who will inherit Abraham's promise, and all the nations will obey him. Now, as the years go by, the Old Testament traces the promise line from Judah to King David, David is chosen to become the head of this royal line that will last forever. We see this promise given to David in 1 Chronicles 17 and 2 Samuel 7. David is understandably humbled by this pronouncement, by this promise given to him. And the book of Psalms has a number of poems, a number of songs that reflect on these promises to David about a coming king, a a coming kingdom, a future king from David's line, this promise from God of an anointed one who will bring God's justice to all the nations. And it's one of these psalms that we're going to look at today. Psalm 110. It's a royal psalm. Let's read it. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle and arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn. You will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. There are two parallel parts in this psalm, this royal psalm. We see these two parallel parts in verses 1 through 3 and 4 through 7. Each begins with a divine promise. This is King David speaking God's very words to a future king. And so we see David the poet and David the prophet in this psalm. The first thing we see is God's promise to this king, the king. You will reign in absolute victory. We see this in verses 1 through 3. This is someone greater than David who's being installed or enthroned as king. He's being guaranteed victory. We don't quite know who this person is yet, but it's someone greater than David. In verse 1, it says, the Lord says to my Lord, or literally the very word of Yahweh, to my sovereign master. You see, the divine name Yahweh is usually translated capital L-O-R-D, all caps in the English versions of the Bible, because it became a practice in late Old Testament Judaism not to pronounce the sacred name of Yahweh, but to say instead, my Lord, or sovereign master, or Adonai. It's a practice still used today. So every time we see all caps, L-O-R-D, in our Bibles, think the great I am. Think the self-existent eternal one. Think Yahweh, he who is. Every time we hear the name Yahweh, even the short form Yah, which is found in the word hallelujah, meaning praise Yahweh, let's remember what that name communicates. The name, Yahweh, communicates God's active presence. So the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, the active and present one, says to my Lord, lowercase L-O-R-D, which means sovereign master or controller. It could be a divine or human person. It could be spoken generally about a superior. But what comes next after he says, Lord, makes it plain that this is enthronement language. It's a divine coronation that's taking place. The installment of a king. Let's read it again. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is God's word spoken by David. David. God is telling David's sovereign master to sit at his right hand. It's a place of honor and power as Yahweh's chosen representative. Listen, you can't come up with a a position of greater power or greater authority. You just can't. Who has this right to sit at Yahweh's right hand? Who is Yahweh putting at his right hand? Who is he recognizing Who would dare speak of someone taking this role or taking this place? He says, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. To make enemies a footstool is an ancient Near Eastern metaphor for absolute control. I mean, total domination. I'm going to totally dominate your enemies. We can see this in Joshua 10. Joshua defeats these kings and he's stepping on their necks. They're under his feet before he does them in. Yahweh is going to work. He's going to work for this one who sits at his right hand. And that's amazing. Yahweh is the one who's going to make his enemies a footstool for his feet. God enthrones and God ensures victory for David's king. This is David's master that that David is prophesying about. This one who is greater than David. And, and Yahweh is enthroning him. And Yahweh is ensuring victory for David's king. It's amazing. Verse 2. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Now what's happening here? Scepter is a symbol of strength and royal authority. The, the word rule is a kind of imperative that makes a a promise. It offers assurance. This rule, in other words, is going to happen no matter what. It's going to happen. The Lord will do this. And then in verse 3, it says, Your troops will be willing on the day of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty, majesty, from the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. It can be difficult to understand this verse. filled with poetic metaphor. People are coming out, though, what we know, they're coming out voluntarily, and they're coming out in great number. Literally, they're willing offerings. They're set apart or consecrated. This army is fully prepared and at the service of the king. They're as abundant as the dew at dawn, strong for battle, ready for action. This is enthronement language. A king is being installed. He's received a scepter. His enemies are under his feet. He's at the right hand of Yahweh. The second promise that we see in this psalm is God's promise to the king. You will be a priest forever. You will be a priest forever. Someone greater than David is now being ordained as a priest forever. Oh, he's being enthroned, and his enemies being defeated. And now here, there's the promise that he will be ordained as a priest forever. Let's read it again. Verse 4. The Lord, capital L-O-R-D. This is Yahweh. This is the ever-present God. This is he who is, the great I am. The Lord has sworn. He has made an oath. He will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, this is an oath. This is a guarantee. It's it's like saying, uh, it's a promise behind a promise. The ESV says this, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. He's just not going to do it. He's not going to change his mind about this. It's like declaring something uh, seven times. It's irrevocable. It's unchangeable. God's promises, listen, they're not going to change. What backs up his promise here is his very character. His character. He makes an oath. He has nothing greater to swear by. He swears by himself. I'm backing this up, he says. I'm making a promise here. Behind our perseverance, our perseverance, is hope. Not speculation. Not wishful thinking. Not I hope so. But it's a certainty in God's promises a clinging to what we know is true and what he will do. So behind our perseverance is hope. Behind hope are the promises of God. And behind the promises of God is the character of God. That's where our certainty comes from. Now the king, the king is going to have an intercessory role, a priestly role. He's going to rule this one that's greater than David, he's going to rule and he's going to mediate. He's going to defend and he's going to declare. He's in the order of of Melchizedek. Who's this guy? We can find the story in Genesis 14. It'd be good for us to turn there. In Genesis 14, Abraham has just rescued um, Lot, his nephew Lot, from this king that was just dominating the area, and who had defeated uh, a number of kings just just before this. That's why Lot had been captured. He had defeated the king of Sodom, and Lot was captured, and Abraham's like, no way, man. Let's go. He's got uh, 318 guys in his household that are trained for battle, and yeah, all these other kings couldn't defeat this, this guy, but Abraham's going in to rescue Lot. In, in the process, he not only rescues Lot, but he rescues a bunch of other women, and and, and, and brings them out, you think Abraham's like long beard, you know, kind of fragile? Not here in Genesis 14. Don't picture Abraham that way. Abraham's a warrior in Genesis 14. And he goes after his nephew Lot, and he gets his nephew Lot. And after this, it says in verse 18 of Genesis 14, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abraham. Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the, the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me. Okay, so Abram, after this great victory, meets this mysterious king, priest, Melchizedek of Salem. This is what we have on Melchizedek. His name means king of righteousness. He was the king of Salem, which is uh, the word for peace. And it's shortened for Jerusalem. So Abraham paid him a tithe, a tenth, and now Melchizedek becomes this signpost. Melchizedek becomes a symbol pointing us to this king. In Psalm 110, this someone who would come after David, who would be greater than David. You see, the priesthood and the kingship were united in Melchizedek. And the oath sworn to this coming king in Psalm 110 is that his priestly work will be an eternal work. He will be both king and he will be both priest. You can read more about Melchizedek in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is just an amazing commentary on the Old Testament. I encourage you, if you're not anywhere in your devotions uh, and you're looking for a book to read, read Hebrews. It's it's just a beautiful commentary. Verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. Up to now, it was the king at Yahweh's right hand, right? Up to now, it was this someone who would come after David who was at Yahweh's right hand. But now, Yahweh is at the king's right hand. The strength behind the king's rule couldn't be greater. But again, we have to pause and ask, come on. Who is this someone? Who is this one who's greater than David? By this time in the psalm, it's, it's harder to discern who's doing what. Is it the divine king or is it Yahweh? What is clear, though, is that this divine king will bring judgment and he will bring victory. And it's symbolized by corpses and rulers. I think that does the job. I think that's, that symbolizes victory okay. Okay. He will judge the nations, and he will crush or be victorious over any and all opposition. Listen, when you're defeated, what do you do? You droop your head. But what do we see the king doing here? At the end, he's drinking from a brook beside the way, and he lifts up his head. The king will confidently drink from the brook. He will lift up his head in triumph. Why? Oh, because Yahweh is at his right hand. That's why. Victory is certain. That's why. What would this psalm have produced in the hearts of its original hearers? What do you think? What would it have, what would it have produced in David's descendants, his son Solomon? What would it have produced in the hearts of the nation of Israel when, after Solomon's reign, the nation is divided? It's split. And after a few hundred years later, they're led off into exile, and Jerusalem is stomped on, and the temple is destroyed, and the Davidic line is silenced. What about someone on David's throne forever? This is what we could call the gap between promise and experience. There would have been for many generations a considerable gap between the promise of Psalm 110 and the reality that it pointed to, or the experience. This psalm, I imagine during the exile and the years after the exile as they rebuilt the nation of Israel, would have offered encouragement, and yet it would have raised questions whether Yahweh will actually come through. Is he going to come through? So hope would have been stirred in their hearts as they read this psalm. Anticipation, expectation, questions about the promises that God made, all the above, just swimming around in the hearts of those who knew God's promises, but were still waiting. We know what you've promised. We know what the prophet David spoke of. We know the promise uh, that you gave to David. We we know that there's this anointed one that's going to come, this this one who's at your right hand, this king. But when? We know what he's going to do. He's going to rule the nations. He's going to put down all opposition. He's going to fight for us, and we're going to rally behind him. But when? When? Put yourself in their shoes as the exile is happening and the temple's destroyed and they're returned and finally back to their land. When is this going to happen? Put yourself in their shoes really during the time of Jesus and with Roman rule and the opposition and the oppression. When is this going to happen? Is it ever going to happen? Have you ever felt that way? You ever been there? You ever feel like you were just living in that gap between promise and experience. You're holding on to hope. You're trying to see or you're trying to hear just again what you know God has promised in Scripture, but you're struggling to believe it. And you're not experiencing it. And the truth is, listen, we, we stand, we live in that gap. We have the promises of Jesus, our resurrected Lord, that he will return. And we're holding on to those promises. We have the promise that he will wipe every tear from our eye. And yet we stare at war and injustice and brokenness and death in the face. And it hurts and it's ugly. Why, Lord? When, Lord? How long, Lord? We stand there between promise and experience. What are you going to lean on? What are you going to look to? Finally, I want us to see point three. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. David saw what was ahead, and he spoke about this anointed one, this messianic king, God's anointed, who was empowered and would be empowered by his spirit to deliver his people who would be a consecrated king, set apart, and would judge the nations and establish God's kingdom and rule forever. That's who Messiah is. That is what the people of God expected throughout the ages. One whom God would provide, who would be filled with the Spirit, deliver his people, be a consecrated king and would judge the nations and establish God's kingdom forever. interesting. Jesus himself talks about Psalm 110 and the difficulty of understanding it. He uses it. He turns the tables actually on his audience and asks them about this psalm. Let's look at it in Matthew 22. Verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Now when Jesus says the Christ, he's speaking of the anointed one I just described. The Messiah the one they're waiting for what do you think about the Christ whose son is he the son of David they replied oh that's an easy one they got that question right right away the son of David of course he's gonna come in the line of David they're leaning on that promise that goes way back He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, quoting Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? All you could hear were crickets. No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. It's so funny. He's essentially saying, how can the Messiah be merely a human descendant of Israel's great king? Oh, he's so much more than that. They, they don't know how David can call him Lord, and he still remained David's son. Psalm 110 is referenced or quoted in some way over 27 times in the New Testament. It's one of the most quoted Old Testament texts there is. It was foundational to the apostles' understanding that Jesus truly is this anointed one, the Messiah, the promised son of David. It's, it's amazing. You know, after Jesus had been raised to life and the Holy Spirit was given to Jesus' followers, Peter saw Jesus clearly for who he, he is, who he truly was. He Peter put the puzzle pieces together so he starts to make these connections for everyone around him. And he boldly applies passages like Psalm 110 that refer to the Messianic king directly to Jesus. The longing, the hope, the anticipation, the expectation that they were waiting for has come in the person of Jesus. And and we see this in his very first sermon after the resurrection in Acts chapter 2. Let's read part of Peter's sermon in Acts 2, starting in verse 29. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of, of what? Of the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life. We are all witnesses of the fact, exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, yet he said this, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, oh my, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What do we do? The resurrection of Jesus was the enthronement of Jesus over every ruler, over every authority, over every power to the right hand of the Father. Psalm 110, it underlines, it underscores the fact that Jesus is both Lord and King. He's Master, the sovereign ruler, and He is King. He's the anointed one. He is the one that the Scriptures promise this promised line that goes all the way back to genesis 315 that runs through abraham and jacob and judah and david this hope that they were holding on to this anticipation that was building year after year after year after year it's met in jesus it's fulfilled in jesus the king And so when the New Testament speaks of Jesus as Christ, when the New Testament calls Jesus Lord, when the New Testament speaks of God putting his enemies under Jesus' feet, or of Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father, it's speaking of fulfillment, of promises that God made and that he kept in Jesus. It's glorious. Let me give you a little sampling. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1. Speaking of God's power at work through Jesus, verse 19, and his incomparably great power for us who believe, that power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given not only in the present age but also in the one to come. And God placed all things Under his feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. For the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Seated at the right hand, all things placed under his feet, an army surrounding him, which is the church. Do you see this fulfillment? 1 Peter 3 speaks of Jesus seated at God's right hand. Romans 8 speaks of Jesus at the right hand of God, who's also interceding for us. So that, that dual role of king and priest. Now, we got to go to Hebrews. Let's walk through a few passages in Hebrews and see. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. And he is the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he, he what? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That's what he did. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Chapter 5, verse 6. David, he says in another place, I love the author of Hebrews. He's like, yeah, somewhere else. He he says this, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a, a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and he was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Interesting. Let's keep going. Chapter 7, verse 17. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. it's, It's important. Again, why is Psalm 110 so important? Because God has kept his promises. That's why. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless for the law made nothing perfect and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Well, because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Wow, he's the guarantee. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in the office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has well, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Oh, such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy and blameless and pure and set apart from sinners exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sin and then for the sins of the people. No, he sacrificed for their sins once for all, when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priest men who are weak, but the oath, oh, he's leaning on that oath. He's leaning on that promise. The oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. We got to keep going because it's just so good. Let's look at chapter 10, verse 11. Day after day, Every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, what did he do? Oh, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's what he did. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice he has been made perfect forever. He, I'm sorry, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Amazing. And finally, chapter 12. We could keep going. I want you to read it on your own. Verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and did what? Oh, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what he did. consider Jesus. Now, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? 2017. Everything in the political realm. Everything. Everything within society. Everything within history. Everything within culture. Everything within our personal lives should be viewed from the vantage point of the ascended Christ should be viewed from the vantage point through the filter that Jesus is king forever, and he's priest forever. He's victorious. He's permanent. He's the one mediator between God and man. So, when we begin to put the puzzle pieces together and see how this anticipation goes all the way back to the opening chapters of the Bible, when, when we begin to understand that this promised king is actually God's chosen way for us to be made right with him, How should we respond? What does that do to you? Does it raise the hair on your arms? Does it give you goosebumps? What does it do to you? How does it affect you? There are days it won't do that, but there are some days that it will do that. It'll have that kind of impact on you. And on those other days that it doesn't do that, what do you do? You fall on the promises of God, his faithfulness. Oh, he made all these promises from the opening chapters of Genesis, and has kept them in Jesus. And so we lean on those promises. We cling to those promises. We fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. So when we're standing in between promise and experience, we look to Jesus, our victorious king and our permanent priest. What can the world throw at me that'll change what God has done in Christ? Nothing. Nothing. What can separate me from that love? What can separate me from that work? What can change what God has done through the high priestly ministry of Jesus, perfecting me in Christ? Nothing. And so it should be the filter through which we view all of life. What's our response? When Peter preached the message and he started to put the puzzle pieces together in Acts chapter 2, you know what he told the crowd that was gathered? He said, Repent and believe. Be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Put your faith in Jesus. Turn away. Turn away from this course that you're on. And with many other cries, he, he encouraged them save yourself from this corrupt generation. Turn away. Fix your eyes on Jesus. What should our response be? To this messianic king, the one who was promised and the one who met all those promises. There are a lot of things competing for our allegiance. I love the opening opening verse, the prop statement we could say of Mark. He sets it up so beautifully. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, he says, This is the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ the Son of God. I to, I'm going to tell you what this is about, guys. This is about Jesus, the Christ. And then he goes on to describe who this Christ really is and how he was promised by Isaiah and how he was announced by John the Baptist. And then Jesus comes and he proclaims what? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Why is the presence of a king And the announcement of a kingdom such good news. Why? Because all the promises that have been met through this king. That he is the one who will rule in justice and might. He is that mediator. He is the one who will bring forgiveness and cleansing. He's the one we've been waiting for. That's why it's such good news. Now, there's a lot that can be competing for our allegiance in our day, things that we could give ourselves to and live for. But Jesus, oh, Jesus is worthy of our allegiance. Jesus is worthy of our praise. Jesus is worthy of our affection and our attention. Jesus is calling us to bow our lives to him and revolve our lives around him. Are you doing that? Do you want to do that more and more? I do. Do you want to learn how to do that together? Well, then let's do that. I mean, that's what we're doing, really. If you're gathering consistently, if you're in fellowship, if you're here at this church, you're pressing in, you're leaning in, you're trying to figure out what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? I want to follow him. I want to follow him more. I I want the Lord to rid me of those things that I'm looking to for for rest and hope rather than him. I I want to center my life on him. I want to bow my life to Christ, my, my king, my savior, my redeemer. Maybe today yeah, you're discovering that there, is, there has not been uh, the awe. There's not been the wonder. There's not been this, this sense that, wow, wow, this announcement of him being the anointed one, the Christ, it's got some history. I'm part of a, a bigger story. He didn't just kind of drop out of nowhere. No, God made promises and And God kept those promises. And that's good news for you and me. Let's lean on those promises. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. For your promises are sweet. They're beautiful. Thank you that you are faithful. That you kept your promises in Jesus our eternal king, our permanent priest, the someone who is greater than David, the Lord of David, the one who would rule forever on David's throne, the one who would judge the nations and crush every opposition, Jesus. Jesus, our king. We thank you. He is seated at the right hand of of you, Lord. We rest in him. Amen.